Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in today's episode I'm joined down the line from across the pond across the Atlantic by a master storyteller and the king of comics. He's one of the best-known fantasy writers in the world whose novels have sold in their tens of millions. He's Neil Gaiman and if you hear any noise in the background it's because Mott the Hoople are recording in the studio next door to him in New York as we speak. Neil, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you very, very much. You're going to be sharing five... In notional space. Exactly, cyberspace. We're going to be sharing five objects that shaped the creation of the cult classic Good Omens, the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which the novel that he co-wrote with the legendary late fantasy author Terry Pratchett. And along the way, we'll dip into the BBC dramatisation of the novel. Good Omens tells of the coming of the apocalypse and the attempts of the fast-living demon Crowley and the angel and used bookseller, Aziraphale, to stop it. Have I pronounced that correctly? You have, which okay. is really good, because people come up to me sometimes and they say, how do you pronounce them? And I, I say, Aziraphale. Aziraphale. They say, it can't be that simple. You know, I've been trying to figure it out for 25 years. So as you wrote but, this in the last century, how does it feel coming back and being reprobed about it now in 2015? Really weird. Looking back at Good Omens, it still feels fresh and funny and goofy and silly and strange. And on the other hand, there are bits of it that are absolutely artefacts of when it happened. It's a world in which nobody has a mobile phone. There are jokes that we do that I look at and go, well, could we do that now? There are even jokes about cassettes in cars. Great. Okay, the stage is set for Armageddon and Humankind's Final Judgment, with the cast including the four bikers of the apocalypse, a witch and professional descendant of Agnes Nutter, a very small army of witch finders, and the 11-year-old Antichrist, his dog and satanical hellhound, and his gang of friends. Now, it's an astonishing story, Neil, and as I said, it was a collaboration with fellow fantasy writer, the late Terry Pratchett. How did that come about? It came about because I had written a book called Don't Panic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Companion. <laughs> and it was enormous fun. I'd got to go through Douglas Adams's archives. I'd interviewed Douglas. And I came away from that going, this is an enormously enjoyable style to write in. This thing that Douglas referred to as classic British humor. It was Woodhouse. It was Douglas. It was all of the Alan Corran, all of those people. And I sat down and wrote the beginning of a book. And I was very proud of the beginning of the book. And I sent it to a couple of my friends to read. And one of them was Terry Pratchett. And about 10 months later, I got a phone call from Terry. And he said, it's me, because that was how Terry always started any <laughs> phone call. He said, it's me. Um, that thing you wrote that you sent me, are you doing anything with it? And I said, no, I'm, I'm really busy. And he said, well, I know what happens next. So either sell me the book mm -hmm. or we can write it together. Now, as far as I was concerned, that's an awful lot like Michelangelo phoning you up and saying, yeah, do you want to do a ceiling? You just... Don't say no. I'd never written a novel. Here was somebody who I regarded as one of the finest craftsmen in the world offering to write a novel with me. And I was like, yeah, we'll do it together, Terry. 
Now, the novel spans 11 years leading up to the predicted end of the world, which will come about on a Saturday just after tea. But we first meet the unlikely double act of the demon Crowley, who at this point still takes the form of a serpent called Crawley, and the angel Aziraphale in the beginning of time, just after the fall of man. Here's a clip from the audio dramatisation of the novel. So, that went down like a lead balloon. Excuse me? I said, that went down like a lead balloon. Oh, it's you. Yes. A bit of an overreaction. I mean, first defence and everything. Well, the rules are the rules. What's so bad about knowing the difference between good and evil? It must be bad, otherwise you wouldn't be involved, Crawley. I don't like that name. You chose to be a serpent. They just said, get up there and make some trouble. Is it actually possible for a demon to do good? Aziraphale, wake up. Angel of the Eastern Gate, who were you supposed to be keeping out? You, for a start. Oh, well done. Come on, it's a pantomime. The garden, the tree, the big deal about don't touch the fruit. Why not put it on top of a very high mountain or a long way off? Not very subtle, is he? Makes you wonder what he's really planning. Ah, uh, you can't second-guess ineffability. There's right and there's wrong. If you do wrong when you're told to do right, you deserve to be punished. In that audio clip, Mark Heap played Aziraphale and Crowley was played by Peter Serafinowitz. What's amazing hearing that is that I am inadvertently thrown back to being six years old and hearing a recording by uh, Joan Greenwood reading Alice in Wonderland and the Queen saying, off with their heads! So I'm sorry that I segued off into that and I'm sure you've been told a hundred million times that you must be in the literary trajectory of Lewis Carroll and everybody else in between. But before I go blathering down that deep rabbit hole, Neil, I want to ask you about your first object, which is Queen's Greatest Hits CD. Why did you choose Queen as the soundtrack to Crowley's mission to halt Armageddon? Because that was the private joke between me and Terry that somehow crept into the book. I think I actually put it in the book. It wasn't even a joke that was intended for the book. It was just something that Terry and I had both noticed that this was back in the days when everybody had cassettes in their car, Mm -hmm. that everybody seemed to have a cassette of The Best of Queen. But if you talk to them about it, nobody could quite ever remember buying it. And really, I think what was probably happening was that you'd stop at a petrol station at some point, and you'd go, I don't have anything to listen to, and you'd look at what there was, and you'd buy the best of Queen. That probably was the reality. But what it actually started to feel like was that cassettes must be turning into the best of Queen. Maybe they transmuted. And I thought, well, if that's true, then we could just have fun with that. And I threw the joke in and then started having much more fun with it. The idea that, first of all, you'd have Freddie Mercury's songs start turning into orders from hell, which seemed fun. And uh, then Terry Pratchett, I think, loved the idea that actually, if you were in Crowley's car, the change would not necessarily be complete. So you'd put on your classical 
tapes and they would also start turning into the best of Queen but they wouldn't turn the whole way so you'd be listening to sort of Vaughan Williams version of Fat Bottom Girls or, or Benjamin Britten's Bohemian Rhapsody and also it was just so I could get one very very bad joke in Crowley listening to Killer Queen and idly wondering who Moe and Shandon are so do you think that Queen is particularly demonic I think one one of the things I loved about Queen was it was absolutely usual. And the glory of writing Good Omens was trying to trying to base everything in the usual. What what demons get funny when they live in a world where Queen is on cassette and in which you have objects like plant misters and uh and you know Crowley is somebody who has taken the agreements that they used to send out with computers and now that you sign when you come up with a piece of software um, and has sent them down to hell to the people who draw up the contracts where you sign away your soul with a little note saying, learn, guys. So Crowley's described as an angel who did not so much fall as saunter vaguely downwards. So he's not your typical demon, would you say? He's not. I think he just sort of hung around with the wrong people. And he's definitely somebody who is determined to make the best of the fact that he seems not to be an angel anymore, although I think that was a bit dull for him. And he's stuck on Earth, which he's now rather enjoying. He definitely didn't enjoy. There were long things about being on Earth he did not enjoy. He did not like the 14th century. Um, I think he thinks the world has got so much better since they came up with plumbing. And uh, and he likes things like, you know, there are good little restaurants. There are places to go. And his opposite number, Aziraphale, is an angel and used book dealer who really, really likes the earth. He, he enjoys the comforts of earth too much to be tempted by the prospect of the apocalypse and the triumph of hell. Is it true that... Terry Pratchett took your original idea of Crowley and tweaked it so that he bore more of a resemblance to you, Neil Gaiman. This is embarrassingly true. My original Crowley was much more sort of awkward and diffident. And Crowley, as tweaked by Terry, Mm -hmm. got... When I was... Particularly when I was in my 20s, I was convinced that I probably didn't look like anything very much and wanted to try and be somebody and wasn't quite sure how you could be somebody. So I took a shortcut and just bought some dark glasses. Are you wearing them right now? I thought, I'm not. I oh. stopped wearing dark glasses at the point where I started walking into things. Um, <laughs> but through my 20s, I would, would bravely and nobly wear dark glasses, even indoors, even at night. It was something that Terry thought was hilarious. So he cheerfully gave uh, the way that I dressed and, um, and also a sort of perhaps vague looseness about the way that I used to speak, perhaps still do, um, to Crowley. So, yes, by the time Terry had finished with Crowley, he was a lot less awkward, diffident and desperately trying to be cool and vaguely certain that the universe was looking out for him. So we've already met Crowley as a serpent when the Earth was just a few days old, but let's catch up with him in human form 11 years before the apocalypse as he drives somewhere east of Slough in his Bentley, serenaded, of course, by the ubiquitous Freddie Mercury.
Yes. Ashter, it's Crowley. I'm on the M25. I don't flame believe this. You took the M25? One of my proudest achievements. It's not easy to get a motorway built in the shape of a sigil from the black priesthood of ancient Mew. You do know we're waiting for you. What's a few minutes' wait compared to years of hard work? This motorway took computer hacks, break-ins, and one wet night when all else had failed, two hours in a squelchy field shifting the marker pegs for Junction 13 several occultly significant meters. Now, every inch of it screams out, Hail the great beast, devourer of worlds. Where is he? So you're stuck in a traffic jam? Far from it. I'm doing 110 just east of Slough. In that old wreck? A 1926 Bentley Haster. It has had one owner from new, and that owner is me. Do you know what the time is? According to my watch, it is 10 p.m. in London, 5 p.m. in New York, and 6 a.m. in Tokyo. It also displays the time in the capital city of another place, but you and I both know the time there. It is always one time there, and that time is too late. Indeed. I'll be with you in two minutes. Just need to deal with the traffic patrol on my tail. Crowley was voiced by Peter Serafinowicz and Haster by Phil Davies. Good Omens is part real world and part fantasy world, as you said earlier, Neil. A demon with a direct line to hell who also drives a 1926 Bentley. Have you always been obsessed with mixing the real and the fantastical? And did you have you been making up stories since you were a little boy? Yes. Probably yes to both. I definitely been making up stories since I was a kid. And I think it's really interesting now looking back at what kinds of things I used to fantasize about because I suspect, well, the other kids in the class would be thinking about being astronauts or rock stars mm-hmm. or actors. Um, I was the one trying to work out how to be the person who had written Lord of the Rings because I'm going, okay, I'm, I'm 10 and a half, I'm nearly 11, and it's already been written by Tolkien. But I would really like to be the person who'd written Lord of the Rings. So what I obviously need to do is fall through a dimensional shift while having with me a copy of Lord of the Rings and go into a dimension in which Tolkien didn't exist, but, it's, but everything else is the same, so my parents are still there, I can still get breakfast. But then I'm going to have a problem because I will have this copy of Lord of the Rings on me and I'm going to need to get it published as by me, which means I'm going to have to get it typed. The manuscript is going to have to be typed out to go into a publisher. I'm sure of that, which means I'm going to have to persuade an adult to type out the entire manuscript of Lord of the Rings. And then I'm going to have to murder the adult because they'll know. And uh, I would always, I'd always get stuck on the murder because it never seemed like a good thing to do and it could have awkward consequences. So you instinctively knew as a little boy that, that going through books got you into this alternate universe. Yes. So what, how old were you when you actually wrote your first story? First stories, I would have been six, seven. I mean, I remember reading things like the Narnia books 
and uh, and going, I have to try this, and writing these stories that were school essay kind of things, and I would hand them in to baffled teachers. And I was lucky. to You know, they, they indulged me. But I thought somewhere in my head I was a writer. But I wasn't sure. It wasn't until I was in my very early 20s, and I just remember thinking... Okay, I have the world ahead of me. I can go out there and do something. And I think I'm a writer. And I don't know if that's true. I've not actually finished a short story for ages. I've never written a novel. I've never actually written anything. And I'm probably not good enough yet to be a published novelist or anything. But I think I'm a, I'm a writer. And if I don't do something, then I could be in my 80s or 90s. I could be on my deathbed. And if I was on my deathbed, I'd be thinking to myself, I could have been a writer and I wouldn't know if I was lying. So let me go out there into the world. Let me try and be a writer. If I fail, that's okay. I give myself permission to fail. I can Mm -hmm. turn around in eight years' time and go, I am not a writer. Actually, I am a hotel administrator. I should have known I was a hotel administrator all along. I will go and administrate hotels. But let me try. I also figured that the best way to become a writer was to do things that would let you write. So I became a journalist, and that was the start of it all. And were you inspired by the that when you befriended Terry Pratchett that he had a day job working for the electricity board and was writing in his spare time? One of the things that Terry and I bonded over was on not being precious And it was the best thing I learned from being a journalist. And Terry started as a journalist when he was like 16, work experience. And you learned very quickly that if somebody wanted an article on their desk at three o'clock, you didn't have room for writer's block. You didn't have room for second thoughts. You had to bang it out. You got it right and you you would be writing it in the middle of a large noisy room with people (laughs) shouting at each other and stuff going on. But you had to do it and you had to get it in. And that... I think for both of us, that was the thing that we bonded on more than anything. Just the fact that how do you do it, you do it. That craft is as important as art, because if you get the craft right, the art will follow. Which is what Noel Coward said. And you've credited libraries with nurturing your love of literature. And you've said that you wouldn't be who you are today without them. How important is it that children have access to books in a local library to you now in 2015? It's hugely, hugely important. I get sad when people say, well, why would you possibly need a library? Look, you can have all of this stuff on an iPad. And on the one hand, hypothetically, yes, you can have a lot of things on an iPad. Mm -hmm. But an iPad is not a safe space. An iPad doesn't give you the magic of a shelf to walk down and to take down something that you don't know what it is, to pick up something because the cover looks interesting. It doesn't give you serendipity. It doesn't give you quiet. As far as I'm concerned, libraries help create future generations. They give us literate adults. They give us people who can have the empathy that fiction can give. And uh, they also provide a number of other services, particularly in today's very wired world, where most job applications occur online. Mm -hmm. And if you are out of work and you do not have the internet and there are people out there with no phones and no internet, that's one of the things they get from libraries and they can go in and they can, a librarian will help. Librarians are smart. 
And when I watch local authorities all over the world, but right now, particularly in England mm -hmm. and in America, cutting their libraries, selling off their libraries, deciding it's an expense they do not need. It, for me, it feels like somebody is like eating your seed corn. It's just stupid. It is so short-sighted. So we should make you the minister of libraries from here onwards. Would you agree to that? The idea of serving in Parliament is one that would normally send me jumping into rivers. Um, but if they actually said, OK, you minister for libraries, you actually get to make sure there are libraries, you will fight for them and we'll give you a budget and libraries all over the country will happen. And if you do this right, we have a golden age of libraries. I would do it. Excellent. You heard it here and you heard it now. Neil, you've obviously established your enormous love for libraries and physical books in your hand. How do you feel about audiobooks? I love them. Normally, it's listening to books that I already love. Um, so I just listened to The Third Policeman as an audiobook. It was fantastic. And I'm now... Uh, wandering my way through the Pickwick Papers as an audiobook and absolutely just delighting in it and letting it wash over me and it makes every drive anywhere better. Agreed. Well, your next object, thank you for that, is a literary one, very appropriately. It's Christopher Marlowe's late 16th century play, The Jew of Malta. Now, The Jew of Malta was one of the inspirations behind Good Omens. And what was it exactly that fired your imagination in this play? It was one scene in The Jew of Malta. And The Jew of Malta is a... Christopher Marlowe was brilliant. Mm. He was a wonderful, powerful writer at a time when Shakespeare was a jobbing journeyman who was sort of figuring it out. Yeah. Marlowe was flying high and writing some of the greatest plays in the English language. Uh, the Jew of Malta, you could go through the, the thing and replace the word Jew with devil, mm -hmm. and it would work just fine. Yeah. The Jews are awful, evil, terrible people. To an extent that I, being Jewish, found impossible to be offended by, even. You're just reading it going, okay, this is a bit weird, Christopher. Not exactly politically correct and not actually much good, but I'm interested, and I, I love you as a writer, and I want to read what you have to say. And there's a scene early on where some of the Jews get together and they compare notes on the evil that they have done. And it's just sort of, you know, ha, 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 what have you been doing? I have been poisoning Christian babies. What have you been doing? Ha, 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 I have thrown children down wells. And, and I, I read that and I thought, you know, this does cry out for the third person where they say, and what have you been doing? And he says, well, I got busy. I you know how it is. I was... They said they'd be around at 12 to deliver it. I was there the whole day. Finally, at 6 o'clock, they put a note through the door. I, I meant to be evil. I just never... And that, for me, was the, the sort of the little moment where one second there was nothing that would ever be good omens and another second there was something. There was the beginning of Crowley. There was the scene with Haster and Liga. And in the book now, the way that it goes is they're sort of comparing notes on evil. And Hester is like, I have tempted a priest. I let him think one little sin would not hurt. He is eyeing the beautiful girls. In five years, we will have him. 
and leaguers like I have tempted a politician. I let him think one little bribe would not hurt. In a year, we will have him. And they look at Crowley and he says, I screwed up the entire phone system of London for half an hour at lunchtime. And he's like, no, no, look, evil. It's like everybody gets angry at everybody. You wouldn't believe how much, you know, you can't, he's like, you can't just knock them off one at a time now. We have to go broad. This is wholesale, guys. So a fantastic combination of the mundane and the monstrous. Now, you were also inspired by a late-night viewing of the horror film The Omen. Is this where the idea for the demonic baby swap came from first? Absolutely. The plot of The Omen is very simple. The Antichrist baby gets exchanged with the baby of the person who is going to be the American ambassador. And it will grow up to be evil and ride his tricycle around in the house. And there will be huge black dogs and strange death. There was definitely part of me that just sort of thought, well, what if there was another baby? What if they got confused? What if the, it's like that thing with peas and shells and the wrong baby is given to the wrong family? Then nobody, everybody's looking over here and going, aha, this is the child of the devil. And nobody's looking over here at the real kid growing up. Let's meet the baby Antichrist in a clip from the dramatisation. Mr Crowley. Ah, sister. Sister, Mary Loquacious. This way, please. Uh, there was a man here. Is he one of us? What man? It's getting harder to tell who is a Satanist and who isn't. Mr Crowley, you are among friends with the Sisters of St Beryl. And so is the adversary... Destroyer of kings, angel of the bottomless pit, great beast that is called dragon, prince of this world, father of lies, born of Satan, Satan, and lord Lord of darkness. darkness, Yes. Is this the wee golden haired cherub? It is. I'd expect it, funny eyes, or teensy wincy hooves, or a little tail, not even horns. That was Sister Mary Loquacious, read by Louise Brealey. And uh, I love that description of her, that she is the satanic nun from the order of the chattering St Beryl. Beryl, a name that seems quintessentially British to me, but however, let's move swiftly on to your (laughs) next object, which is Richmond Crompton's Just William series. Another literary inspiration, though somewhat different or at odds, on the surface, from Christopher Marlowe. So how did the bullseye-eating Violet Elizabeth, tormenting hero of Richmond Crompton's Just William series, influence your writing? Well, Terry and I both loved the William books. And it might not be saying too much to admit that the original title of Good Omens in its first draft was William the Antichrist. Because they'd always, the William books would always, after Just they'd always be William the Pirate or William the Good or whatever. And William the Antichrist seemed. And that was the other half of the idea. The other half is, okay, well, you've got the baby swap. What would the Antichrist grow up to be? Where is he? And I thought, well, let's, let's just have him grow up to be William Brown. And as it was when we finished the first draft, we went, you know, it's probably more fun if we go and just sort of file off the serial numbers on this and change stuff and own the whole thing, actually, and not have to ever negotiate with the Richmond Crompton estate and say, yeah, we, we made him the son of the devil. Is that okay? <laughs> so we, we changed 
William Brown to Adam Young. And, uh, and that actually became more fun because Ginger became Pepper and she's a girl and they always needed a girl in the Outlaws. I, I loved the William books. I, I always thought they were stories that worked the good ones on two different levels because you could read them as a kid, as kids' books, except that an awful lot of what she's skewering uh, was the same kind of people that P.G. Woodhouse is skewering. She's skewering pretentious 1920s and 30s types. She's puncturing pomposity and occasionally using uh, William and Co. to explore really rather big ideas. Adam Young is a very different kind of antichrist. And what do you think is so appealing about his just William-esque character? Uh, well, part of it is simply the fact that the Just William character is incredibly appealing. Um, his enthusiasm for things, the way that he believes things, the way he will take on adult nonsense and then drop it. And we just had fun with that because we let him believe everything. When he believes that nuclear power is a bad thing, suddenly the nuclear power stations... The reactor disappears, but they're still putting out power. There's nothing in the reactor room but a sherbet lemon. So that is, um, so I think that getting that kind of glorious William-esque belief in there was probably for me the key to the character of Adam Young and one of the keys to the book. Your next object is a domestic one. Though, as it turns out, it has an altogether otherworldly use in the novel. It's a plant mister. Now, how did this influence Good Omens? Well, let me tell you, first of all, how Good Omens got written, which is a long way in to the plant mister. Good Omens tended to get written by Terry and me talking a lot and then desperate on the phone and then one or other of us would be in a desperate race to get to the next good bit before <laughs> the other one could. And this was one of my triumphs because getting to write it was just glorious. There was a scene where Crowley had to go up against two other demons. He does it. He has a secret weapon. It's in the safe in his house. It's holy water. And he stole it 50 years ago. And he keeps it as you would keep, you know, nuclear waste. <laughs> but at one point, you get two demons coming in. And I loved the idea that if you're actually in this sort of wonderfully just William-esque world, how would you take on demons? And so he does it with a bucket half full of holy water over the door. And when the demon opens the door, the bucket falls on him, which is the classic kid's way of, of getting revenge on another kid. But the demon then explodes. He's only got one demon and the other one walks in and Crowley gets to pick up a plant mister and he says, right, this is, you know what this is? This is a plant mister and it's full of holy water. And the demon says, you're bluffing. And he says, I may be. I may be bluffing. Are you feeling lucky? I just love the idea of a face-off between a demon <laughs> and a guy holding a plant mister. <laughs> So Crowley, perhaps unexpectedly for a demon, is a keen gardener and has an enviable collection of houseplants in his Mayfair flat. Now, why did you decide to make your demon green-fingered? We decided to make him green-fingered in a very specific way because in the 
late 70s and early 80s, you don't hear about it so much. There was a whole thing about talking to your plants. Mm -hmm. And it was a kind of thing that you'd read articles about in the Sunday supplements. They have a thing on how here are some plants that somebody talked to and here are ones they didn't. And look, these ones are a bit weedy and these ones have blossomed and they also got some... And it was the kind of it was normally an excuse to fill three pages, mm-hmm. and I just thought, you know, the whole talking to plants thing, maybe we're getting it wrong. So Crowley has the most beautiful pot plants in the entirety of England, and because he talks to them, and what he does really is talk to them like a character from The Godfather, and if any of the plants is looking a little peaky. Mm-hmm. He's going to bring it round to the other plants and he's going to say, say goodbye to your friends. He's not cutting it. And then the plant would never be seen again and he'd walk round and he'd tell the other plants that unless they grew, the same thing would happen to them. And they grow. They are the, the best, most beautiful plant in Mayfair, also the most terrified. You've sold millions of copies of your fantasy novels and comics around the world. Good Omens has developed a real cult following now. Do we all need a temporary escape from the world sometimes? And do you think that this is part of the reason why your genre of writing is so popular? I think we need an escape. Yes, I think we need a, And more than that, I think we need a break. But I also don't necessarily think that the tag of escapist fiction is a particularly useful one because escapist fiction tends to imply that there is nothing that you can have learned, there is nothing that you can have taken, that if you read some of this fiction, you are not changed. And I think the truth is that a good piece of fiction changes you. Mm. Good Omens is funny, but that doesn't mean it's not serious. It doesn't mean that it's not actually about what Terry and I believe, which is that it's important to look after the world while you're here. That anybody who tells you that they know what God wants is lying mm-hmm. or mistaken. <laughs> All of those kind of things. And that God may have other plans that he may not have let you in on. And being human is a very special, very unique thing. And all of that was the kind of stuff that we could put into our book. And it's kind of weird now because here we are a quarter of a century later which means I will run into people who will tell me that they became professors because of reading Good Omens or became atheists because of reading Good Omens or in several cases became ministers because of reading Good Omens. And I go, okay, well, this is definitely, it's influenced people, it's changed people. And yes, it's funny because it should be, if you set out to write a funny book, it should be funny. But G.K. Chesterton said that people make the mistake of assuming that serious and funny are opposites, and they're not. Mm-hmm. The opposite of funny is just not funny. Yeah. <laughs> so you've obviously met thousands of your fans at book signings and events, clutching their copies of Good Omens in various states of dereliction or shiny perfection. Have you had any favourite fans that you've met for their sheer human idiosyncratic peculiarities. Well, the glorious thing about Good Omens, more than anything else I've written, more than anything else Terry had written, and we would get together and marvel on this, is it always seemed like the only fans you'd ever meet with a pristine copy of Good Omens at a signing um, would be somebody who would grumble 
that their last copy had been stolen or lent out and not got back. And then as you signed their pristine copy of Good Omens, they would tell you about the five copies of Good Omens they had bought over the year and grumbled that they were making you rich. And neither Terry nor I could ever really see it in ourselves to sympathise properly with them on this. You would get copies of Good Omens that have literally gone around the world in people's backpacks. There is a peculiar tendency for Good Omens to fall both in puddles, in baths, and on several occasions into soup. You know, here you're signing a book. Terry, for a while, um, actually used to carry around a pair of rubber gloves with him, these, these latex gloves. To avoid and infection. When a, when a fan presented him with one of these really gloriously swollen manky each page he would he would formally in front of them put on his rubber gloves before signing which i always thought was hilarious so since you've become a global brand is it difficult to carry on with the actual business of writing alongside interviews and events and signings and do you feel a pressure that whatever you're writing you have millions of people peering over your shoulder waiting for your next publication yes is it scary writing Knowing that you have a readership, yes. Is that better than not having any readership? It is in some kind of weird way. When Terry and I were writing Good Omens, despite the fact that Terry was already a published author, I think he had about five Discworld books and a handful of others out at that point, I remember Terry phoning me up when we were about three quarters of the way through, and he said, here, it's me. How long... How long have we been writing this? And I said, mm, nine weeks. He said, what's the, what's the longest we could keep going on this? I said, probably about 16 weeks it'll be done. <laughs> he said, we can, you know, if nobody buys this, we can, we can afford that, can't we? And I said, yeah, we can eat that. He said, yeah. He said, no one's going to buy this. And I said, I think they probably will. Astonishing. So going back to way back when in the last century, specifically 1985, your next object is a vintage, as we now call them, answer phone. This was one of the ways that Terry used to give you feedback when you were working together on Good Omens. Well, this was back in the old days and I had my own answer phone. I was very uh, nocturnal at the time. I had two small kids. I would sort of keep life going until about nine o'clock at night. The kids would go to bed and I would start writing. And then I would write solidly from nine o'clock at night until about five, six o'clock in the morning. Wow. I can no longer do this. If I tried to do this now, I would fall asleep with my head on my computer and I would wake up with 300 pages of the letter M. I know because I've done it. <laughs> but back then, I was at my best, I was nocturnal, and I would wake up at about one o'clock in the afternoon and I'd get up and the little red light would always be flashing and I'd press the tape and it would rewind and a voice would say, here, it's me. Wake up, wake up, you lazy bastard. Wake up, get out of bed. I've just written a good bit. And so I would then telephone Terry. And he would read me what he'd written that morning. And I would read him what I had written much, much, much earlier that same morning. And we'd make each other laugh. And that was the joy 
of Good Omens. So Terry Pratchett, obviously with whom you co-wrote Good Omens, sadly died last year after fighting early onset Alzheimer's disease. How do you like to remember Terry? The weirdest bit about Terry dying was because of the slowness and because of the inevitability, I thought when he actually did die that it wouldn't affect me. I thought, you know, we'd known that the end was coming, Mm -hmm. we were prepared. And somehow, when he died, it was as if he came back into focus as a hologram. And suddenly, there was my friend of 30 years, and he wasn't there anymore, and I couldn't call him. And that hurt. But he managed with Alzheimer's, to write more great books than most people without Alzheimer's will write in their lives. And i that's how I remember Terry, as just somebody who really was a friend but also a craftsman to the last. And how did you feel about his decision to speak up about the, his diagnosis and open up dialogues about the right to die? I was so proud of him. I was so proud of him, and uh, on both of them. I was thrilled and proud when he went public with the Alzheimer's because it's something that people don't talk about. It's affected all of us. I don't know anybody who has not had a family member or a friend's family member with Alzheimer's. And if we put the tiniest fraction of the amount that goes into fighting cancer, into fighting Alzheimer's, Maybe we'd actually beat it, but it's been, I think, too long seen as an inevitability. And it's not. It's tragic. It's horrible. People are no longer the people they were, and that is awful. As for the right to die stuff, until I started talking to Terry, I'd never really thought about it. I just wasn't something I'd given a lot of thought to. Terry, and watching the documentaries that Terry made and sent me, It really struck home to me that this is so much part of human dignity. The peace that you will grant a cat or a dog with cancer, you cannot grant a person, and that is a terrible thing. Anil, give us one last happy anecdote about your friendship with Terry, if you you can. One of the things that Terry and I bonded over was the fact that we would call each other up when we got stuck on our own books. It's me. We would. He would always, you know, the phone would ring and he'd say, here, it's me. Listen, which is funnier? <laughs> and he'd give me two things and I would, I would tend to say, you know, you can do both. And he'd say, how? And I'd tell him. And he'd say, oh. And then he'd put down the phone. I tended to phone him when I get stuck. And I phone him up and I go, look, I've got this thing in my book. I need this to happen. I need this, but I need, oh, what do I do? And at which point he would adopt a cod persona based on an ancient television series called Kung Fu. And he would always say, ah, grasshopper, he would say. The answer to your question is implicit in the question itself. And I would go, Terry, don't give me that. Just tell me. <laughs> and uh, and he would always see a wonderful way out of it. And he would always be gloriously, magnificently and hilariously irritating um, in the delivery of whatever solution he had. 
Neil, thank you very, very much for sharing your time today on this podcast from across the Atlantic. Thank you so much, Richard. That was so much fun. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and join us on Facebook to see who else will be joining me in the Penguin Studio soon. From BBC Audio, Neverwhere is an award-winning BBC radio adaptation of Neil Gaiman's best-selling novel, set amongst the subterranean sewers and abandoned tube stations of London and featuring an all-star cast, including James McAvoy, Natalie Dormer and Benedict Cumberbatch. What would you like to know? My family. They were killed by Krupp and Vandermar, but who ordered it? I want... I want to know why. Yes. Many secrets find their way down to me. Many rumours and half-truths and echoes. And you? What do you want, Richard Mayhew? Uh, I don't know. I want my life back. I just don't feel that I belong here. I did what I thought was a good deed, you know, and I feel that I'm being punished for it. There is nothing unusual about that feeling. It was a good deed. <sighs> Richard, no. Oh. Anybody would have done the same. Listen, look at me. All right. You saved my life. I'll never forget that. I adore. Thank you. I just don't belong here. I've got a life I worked hard to build up there. Thought there was a way to get it back, and now I, I don't. I don't think that can happen. It can happen. Ugh. Do you doubt me, Richard Mayhew? Uh, um, no, no. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. No, look, 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 look. To be honest, most of the experiences I've had in the last few days have been what I would believe to be impossible. But I realise that the simplest and most likely explanations for what I'm seeing are the ones given to me. Getting your life back will not be easy. But your future is as much in your hands as the Lady Dawes is in hers. And you and your companions will face some very real difficulties, both in the task and in the return. But there is a key to all our problems. A key? Literally? The Black Friars are its custodians. Find it. Bring it to me. Available now on iTunes and Audible.